Well, it is January the 3rd, and it is an opportunity this morning as we turn the calendar to turn the page on a new series. And so this morning, we... Uh, a what? Football. Football's later. Bible now, football later. Right? All right, good. All right, so we're going into a new series. Here it is, right? Uh, it is a series on the character of... Elisha. How many of you have ever heard of Elisha in the Bible? A number of you. That is good. You paid attention in Sunday school. He is not probably on the top 10 list of those who you would study naturally in the scriptures, um, but that is where we are coming. And some of you, I've been asked this question a number of times, even since coming to covenant, is like, how do you figure out what you're going to preach on? Like, how, how does that work? And the short answer to that is God. The, the longer answer to that is, is that I do like to work systematically through the Bible. So um, you've seen it already in my time here. We'll uh, spend some time in the Gospels or in Acts, as we've just done. Uh, we'll spend some time in the Old Testament, which we're about to do. And we'll spend some time in the letters of Paul, the Pauline epistles, or the pastoral epistles, which we'll do after this series, right? Uh, and do that. And I like to systematically move around in the Bible to do that. So this morning we're in the Old Testament for the next 15 weeks up through Easter in the Old Testament, and we are studying the character of Elisha. I also pay attention to what's happening, right? Uh, we are called to be believers uh, in the world, right? Uh, but not of the world, but we need to pay attention to being in the world. So I, I don't think Sunday morning should somehow be separated from what you guys go through and Monday through Saturday. And so as I think about uh, who we might study or where we might go in the scriptures, I think about the context of the world. There's not been much going on. So I, it's kind of an open book, right? And be, no. So we've, we've been talking a lot. So when we did Acts, it was seize the day because I was uh, belaboring the reality that in the first church, they took an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and we, in the midst of virus and everything else that was going on, need to be a church that is proclaiming the scriptures. We talked about hope a lot through Christmas, and we're going to talk about hope continually in this because I believe, as we'll see today, that Elisha is a messenger of hope. And then, finally, I pray. And uh, it's interesting, last year, as I was doing um, my uh, read through the Bible in a year, uh, when I came to Second uh, Kings and began to read about Elisha, something stirred within me, and I was like, well, that stirring needs to just be for me, or maybe, God, that's a stirring that we should preach on Elisha, and so I began to process that in prayer, and do believe that God has led us uh, to Elisha in the Old Testament as a messenger of hope for such a time as this. There are two things that I hope you take away from the next 15 weeks, and that is this, that as Elisha is a messenger of hope, that if you come in need of hope, you'll hear hope. God's going to do some astounding things through the prophet Elisha. And so as we see that, that you receive the hope that uh, Elisha proclaims. But also, secondly, that we might learn from Elisha, be inspired by Elisha to be ourselves proclaimers of hope. Right, That we are the ones who are actually out there proclaiming the hope as Elisha did in his day. So that's the two things. I'll ask you after Easter, uh, did you get that? Hopefully the answer to that is yes, that we would indeed experience hope, but that we would also be inspired to be messengers of hope. 
Okay, with me so far? So here we go. Uh, you know when we start a new series, uh, context, 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 context. We have to talk about context. How does this fit in the larger picture of the Bible? And so uh, this morning, let me take you back to, let's see, in the beginning, right? Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. I'll go quickly, don't worry, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know the reality of creation, and you know that God repeatedly said uh, this when he created it, that everything was good. Very good, Bible scholars as you are, right? Everything was good. Well, just three chapters into the Bible, everything turns bad. <laughs> and man is found to be disobedient. Adam and Eve do what they know they shouldn't do while they probably don't do the things they know they should do. And uh, all of a sudden, sin has entered into the world. And, and brokenness begins to ensue. For Adam and Eve, that meant being thrust from the perfection of the garden. Uh, and for all of history, including today, it means that we're in this journey awaiting for that brokenness to be restored. For us to find the garden of heaven, even as there was a garden in Eve, right? So we're all in this in-between part. And that's really the story of the Bible. The good news is that God gives us amazing hints of that restoration, of how he's restoring us from brokenness to wholeness along the way. Though man continues in his disobedience, God remains faithful. And that is maybe the theme of this first point of thinking about where Elisha steps into biblical history. That though man is disobedient, God remains faithful. That though all of creation is broken, God has made a way for all things to be made whole. As one commentator puts it, God does not treat his people as their sins deserve. God does not treat his people as their sins deserve. So how does Elisha fit into that? Well, after the fall, man only became more disobedient to the point that God said, I'm going to destroy them. So here comes a flood. But, so there's man's disobedience. Here comes consequence of flood. But here's God's faithfulness. He saves whom? Noah. Very good. And his family, right? So, uh Man, though, then continued in his disobedience. We have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. But God had a plan that out of that, he would be faithful to create a nation for himself, give them a promised land to inhabit. And so you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three generations that saw the people of God established in the nation of Israel. And here was God's promise to them. I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's an astounding promise. God is faithful, even in the midst of our disobedience. And so from that point, everybody got it right, correct? No, it got worse. The sons of Jacob acted in sin towards their brother Joseph. But guess what? God is faithful. So Joseph gets sent to Egypt, but then he becomes a ruler in Egypt so that he could feed his family and all of Israel uh, during a great famine. Right? The problem, because of sin and because of going to Egypt, God's people then become slaves of Egypt, captives of Egypt. But God is faithful and through Moses delivers his people out of Egypt and returns them to the promised land. 
Through the faithfulness of God in and through Joshua and others, the people of God are reclaiming their land. In doing so, the people of God establish a king. The first king they establish is not done quite right, right? But God said, listen, you want a king? I'll give you a king. Gave him King Saul. King Saul ended up not being a great king, but following King Saul was King David. He was the promised king. As God was saying, you are my people and I will be your God. He said, this is your king. And David had issues, right? It was not perfect. So even though in his disobedience, God remains faithful. God fights for his people. God restores their land. But soon disobedience would result in a divided kingdom. David was the one sole king. Solomon was the one king over all of Israel. But after Solomon's passing, Rehoboam and Jeroboam become kings at odds with one another. And there is a divided kingdom. And then we see this whole series of bad kings and good kings. If you've ever read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, it's like a soap opera, right? There's a good king, and then there's a bad king, and then there's another bad king, and then there's a good king, and there's a bad king. And, and you're just like, whoa, what is going on? Well, what God is saying is, listen, <laughs> my faithfulness is not going to give you what you deserve. Your disobedience is so great. In the following of Baal gods and other gods and, and sacrificing even your children to these gods and ignoring me, but my faithfulness will continue. And so in his faithfulness, God, in the midst of that crazy scenario of good kings and bad kings, gives them a prophet. His name is Elijah. Now, you have to understand, God has a great sense of humor. He gives us two prophets right next to each other. One is Elijah and one is Elisha. So today I will go Jah and Shah so that you make sure that you get the Jah and the Shah, right? Uh, Just so I think God wanted to say, make sure you're paying attention. So in the midst of all this brokenness, here comes Elijah. This is Elijah's job. How would you like this for your job description? I want you to tell the people of Israel how awful they are. And I want you to tell the people of Israel that judgment is coming. And so he says, hey, listen, there's going to be a really bad drought, and there was. And they kind of looked at him and went, well, like, you caused the drought, can't you fix the drought? And he goes, no, you deserve this drought. That was Elijah's job, right? Not a great job. Not a great job. It leads to some amazing things. If you want an amazing story to read, 1 Kings 18, right? And Elijah defends defeats the Baal gods in this amazing, astounding uh, display of God. But what's interesting in that is that even after that miraculous and marvelous display of God, Elijah is all alone. And that brings us close to Elisha. Let me read to you first, before we get to our text today, this familiar scripture probably to you at the uh, mid part of Elijah's service to God, but it leads us to the call of Elisha this morning. So after this amazing thing that God does, Elijah finds himself all alone and he finds himself running for his life from the evil queen Jezebel. And then this happens. It says, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, your promise. They've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your promise, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What God is saying to Elijah is that you feel very much alone. But I have this promise. There's going to be a new king in Syria. There's going to be a new king in Israel. And Elijah, you are to pass the mantle to a new prophet as well. And his name is Elisha. When Elijah is wrapped in the consequences of the disobedience of man, God is revealing to him His faithfulness, a promise of hope. And that hope is in the prophet Elisha. So as we go through the next 15 weeks of the life of Elisha, I want you to look for that message of hope. Because Elisha is a promised messenger of hope. And I want you to be inspired to be like him as a messenger of hope in these very days in which we live. Because we still live in the consequences of our own disobedience as well as we live in a broken world in the consequences of man's disobedience. But we must hear, the world must hear, that God is faithful. There is an Elisha moment for us. And guess what? That Elisha just might be you. So our text this morning, 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21. If you have your Bibles uh, not already opened, you might open them to there, get on your devices to that place. An amazing call to the prophet Elisha. Everybody still with me? You're excited? All right. 1 Kings 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 19. So he, Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. 
And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, kids, there's some good pictures there you should be drawing right now, right? I'm so excited to see some of these pictures, right? Here's the first thought that I want us to see this morning really quickly as we address this text is is I want you to see this amazing call of Elisha. You'll find that Elijah alone, scared to death, running from Jezebel, right? In this cave, hears from God, and he hears three things with regard to two new kings and a new prophet. But where does he start? He starts with the new prophet. He goes immediately, probably 300 miles. It it, it has been told, thought, that it took Elijah 40 days to get where he was, and now he's going back. So even 40 days back now to where Elisha is. But he goes immediately. And where does he find Elisha? He finds him in seminary, studying to be a prophet. Sorry, no, hits on seminary. No, he doesn't find him in seminary. He doesn't even find him with his Bible open, right? Where does he find him? He's working in a field. Elisha's doing what Elisha does, right? And a couple of things about finding him in the field that I want us to see. First of all, I, I want us to see that Elisha comes from a family of means. He's a rich dude. He's a rich dude. I want you to get this picture. 12 pair. Somebody do quick math. That's how many oxen. 24. You guys are brilliant. All right. 12 pair of oxen. Oxen. Big oxen, right? Right. Big oxen. 12 pair of oxen, and they're plowing the field. This field is larger than my raised bed on the side of my house, right? This field is bigger than your acre of land that you might pull up in order. This field is huge. 12 pair of oxen plowing the field and the fact that you have 24 oxen tells me you got money right and we see here the reality of uh, Elisha in that place he is with I think uh, significantly so the last pair of oxen he's in charge he's the son of the landowner he's the one that has been placed out there to watch the other 11 as they plow we've got to do this right he's in the last pair in order that he might watch everyone else so here he is a man of means a man who has life laid out for him a man who has everything at his disposal right hang on to that elisha plowing the fields Elisha is not the son of a prophet. Historically, at this point, the only prophets are those who are sons of prophets. It's like being an undertaker, right? When you're a son of an undertaker, what do you do? You're an undertaker, right? No hit to undertakers out there, right? But there is some jobs, right, that see this family name. Well, to be a prophet means you're probably the son of a prophet. Elisha's not the son of a prophet. He's the son of of a farmer, right? This is who he is. The call, this moment in time, is not something that Elisha expects. It's not something that he anticipates. It's not something 
that he's working towards. He's doing his thing. He's plowing the field. And here comes Elijah. And some of you know how my brain works now. It's scary at times. We go beyond the Bible here in some. But can you imagine this picture? I mean, we're not told how it happens. We're only told that Elisha's plowing the field, right? And all of a sudden, Elijah comes up, puts some big old cloak on him, and then he rides away. Now, I I have a way of trying to figure out what that looks like. I I picture Elijah on a horse, though I don't think they rode horses in that time. So a camel, I don't know, donkey, I don't know what he was on. Or whether he's just walking through the field, and here's Elijah up on his plow, and, and Elijah comes by and just puts the cloak on, and he just keeps walking. Right? And, and Elisha's got to be like, what just happened? Like, was that Elijah? And, and there's this reality of this surprise to Elisha. Man, I'm a farmer's son plowing my field, and all of a sudden I got a cloak on me. What in the world is the significance of the cloak? Well, uh, this cloak you may never see. It is actually a robe given to me when I um, graduated from seminary and was ordained. It's my preacher robe. It hangs in my closet, hoping never to get used other than a Bible illustration of a cloak, right? I'm doing it. If you do get married and demand that I wear it, I will, but that's probably the only time you'll see it. So, uh, so here, here it is, right? Bible illustration, the reality of a cloak. It, it has some significance because my church gave it to me in that point, kind of saying, hey, listen, this is, this is a reality. You've done it. You've made it. You're ordained, man. Go, go do your thing, right? And it's similar with Elisha. Elisha's farming. Elijah comes and he says, here is my cloak. What does that mean? Was he cold? No, he wasn't cold. Does that mean like he needed some sign? No, the reality is, is what Elijah is doing, exactly what God said to do. He's passing the mantle of the prophecy. He's saying, man, you are the man now. Elijah, you are the guy. Now, I have a question. If you're Elisha, are you excited about this new mantle? Does Elisha go, dude, man, I'm going to be a prophet. No, 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 think about who put it on him. Think about where he's coming from. Running for his life. Because this wicked queen Jezebel, who's twice as bad as her husband, who's already bad enough, Ahab, right, is after his life. I'm, I'm kind of thinking Elijah goes, man, I'm getting rid of this thing. Here you go, Elisha, right? And, and Elisha's not going, hey, dude, I'm going to be a prophet. He's going like, whoa, whoa, no, like take this back, right? I mean, if, if I think that I'm being Elisha and I feel this cloak of this mantle of prophecy, knowing that it means my life is at stake, yikes, right? But look at Elisha. He doesn't take it off. In fact, we have no sense at all of the fact that it's weighty to him other than the significance of knowing that he is the called out of God. He seemingly is taking this call with great honor. And it's a reflection of his heart Maybe an awareness that God has made this call, not Elijah. 
a surprising joy to take on this mantle as prophet, though it would possibly, could possibly mean his life. It's so reflective of other more well-known calls in the Bible. We can think of Peter and Andrew, James and John. Remember what they were doing? Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're in their boat doing what they're doing, right? So just like Elisha was in the field doing his deal, they're in a boat fishing. And who comes by? Jesus comes by and he says, listen, uh, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. To which they created three Presbyterian committees to discern whether Jesus was actually telling the truth, right? Prayed and fasted. No, listen. Jesus comes by and says, hey, guys, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they what? They followed him. Count the cost. Think about Matthew. Matthew's, in Matthew 9, is sitting, being who he was, a tax collector. Bad dude, cheating people, all kinds of nasty stuff. Jesus walks by and says, follow me. Matthew goes, who, me? No, he doesn't, he doesn't, he just goes, okay, I'll follow you. And he gets up and he leaves his business of tax collecting to follow Jesus. How about the apostle Paul? He's persecuting Christians. He's on his way to kill more. And a light shines. We see this, right, in Acts chapter 9. And he's blinded. He goes to Cornelius. He's healed, but not only receives his physical sight, but receives spiritual sight and becomes one of the greatest mouthpieces of God's glory in all of time. I don't know that any of those are coveted positions. I don't know that any of them are somehow thinking they're getting selected in the first round of the draft by virtue of this position. But there is something about the power of God in these calls that reflect the picture that we see in 1 Kings 19 and the unexpected call of Elisha. Listen, it's even in the spirit of Jesus who it is said about for the joy set before him What? Endured the cross. That is a statement that will, this side of heaven, confound me. But I think it's a piece of what we see in Elisha, in Peter, in Andrew, in James, in John, in Saul. That the joy set before me enables me to endure the heaviness and the weight of the call. We had a, um, a small conference here that we did virtually this past week uh, with some young adults from here at Covenant Church and um, some uh, college students from YSU that my son leads a ministry with. And uh, it's great. It's called the Cross Conference. Dave Platt, uh, John Piper, others spoke at it. And we were in the youth room watching this. It was amazing and great and good. And, and one of the themes throughout that day and a half of conferencing together was the reality of the weight of the call of God and yet the joy (laughs) that is in it. Because we indeed know that God is the one who initiates the call. I want you to feel that this morning for Elisha. He's on his plow. The mantle is placed on him and there is a weight to this mantle that he is well aware of. But there is joy in knowing that it is God who has called him out for such a task as this, for such a time as this.
So how does Elisha respond? Well, we see his response. He first immediately runs after Elijah. It appears as if he quickly moves from what he is doing to accepting the call that has been placed on him. And when he catches up to Elijah, again, just a weird thought, like he's running across the field because Elijah just keeps on walking. He's caught up to him. And when he catches up to him, he says, hey, can I first go back and say goodbye to my family, to my mom and to my dad. And some of you more brilliant minds will think to a passage in the New Testament and think, oh, Elisha, wrong, wrong question to ask. Because in Luke 9, Jesus is addressing the cost to follow him. And a follower says, listen, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Yikes. So, so is Elisha's request one like this that might receive the hard words of Jesus? Well, we don't see him get a rebuke from Elijah. In fact, what Elijah, the man of God, the prophet of God, says to him is, yeah, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> you, you prob- because you're not going to see them again, right? Uh, you, you, probably a good idea to count the cost of the weight of that which you now bear. Because if you're going to do this, you're going to receive this cloak, this call. It's going to be hard. So go back and give your mom and dad a kiss and say goodbye. As we walk through the rest of the story, we see that that is exactly right. It's, it's not a, a distracted heart that Elisha has that calls him back home. It is one that actually feels the weight of the call and where it is that God is taking him. In the rest of the story, uh, we would see that there is deep sacrifice that Elisha makes in leaving family to be a prophet. We see this in Elisha's decision to sacrifice his oxen and destroy his plow. An action, listen, that is eliminating the temptation of becoming distracted and returning to being a farmer. You get it? So he's on his plow, he's got his two oxen, he receives the call, he then goes back, it says in the text, and he sacrifices the two oxen And he starts the fire by chopping up his plow. Folks, this will preach. You ready? Sometimes we have to destroy the things that we've come from in order to carry the weight of where God is calling us. You know what Elisha's doing? He's going, man, it's going to be a temptation. When I get out there and I'm running for my life, and I know that daddy has the plow in the barn, and my oxen are tied to the stake... might minch my way back to that because that life is a whole heck of a lot easier than the life that I'm carrying. So Elisha, with great wisdom, sacrifices the oxen, provides a feast for his family, and he destroys his plow. In, In 1519, there was a guy by the name of Hernan Cortez. He was from Spain. He landed on the shores of Mexico with 600 men. They had no armor. (laughs) Listen, it had been over 600 years that the land had not been conquered by any other armies with more resources even. But you know what Cortez did? He did something bold. Hernan Cortez issued an order that once they got out of the boats to burn the boats. And guess what? 
the first leader in 600 years to defeat those who were on that land to take victory. Why? Because his men knew it was either die or conquer. I think that's the heart, the feeling that Elisha has. It's a well-known fact that uh, back in the day, uh, Moravian uh, missionaries, when they went to the field, uh, when they went to pack their things, they packed them in a casket. You know why? Because for those Moravians, being called as a missionary meant, you're going to need this someday. (laughs) You ain't coming back. This is your call. I think that's the weight of what Elisha is feeling as he sacrifices these bulls, as he destroys his plow. He's saying, I'm not going to be distracted by the things of the past in my call for the future. Rather, I will destroy them. And then our text ends with, then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. We're not given much information about the next 10 years, but it is a 10-year apprenticeship that Elisha has with Elijah before we get to Elijah's dramatic taking up into heaven, which is next week. But let me ask you a question this morning as we consider Elisha's call and response. How, how do we hear hope in this text? How are we inspired to be a messenger of hope ourselves? Well, well, hear this hope. You ready for this? Your calling is a calling as a child of the living God. You, believing in Christ and him crucified, him risen from the dead, you have been called to heaven as well as your calling to be a messenger of hope on earth. And get this, none of it was your idea. It's not as if you were sitting at your desk going, okay, Jesus, I know that I've done all that I need to do to be a Christian, and so I decide now to be a Christian. That is is not how it happened. The reality is is that that God has moved on your life. It is the Spirit of God who has placed a cloak on you of salvation. I I don't know if you can imagine it and thinking about your conversion, but I was spending some time this week thinking about mine, and many of you know my story. I won't retell my story, but here I am in the eighth grade sitting on a lazy boy chair in my mom and dad's bedroom considering the cost of what it is to follow Christ reading from Isaiah 6 whom shall uh, who shall I send who will go for us and Isaiah says here am I send me and it's a conversion moment and I think man eighth grade stoffers feeling good I'm accepting Jesus I'm walking with Jesus but you want to know what's happening in the spiritual realm at that moment The Spirit of God is coming into that bedroom, onto that lazy boy, and he's dropping the cloak. And he says, Stoffer, you are my child. I'm calling you out. Feel the weight of that, but experience the joy of that. And you know why that's important? Because when life gets stupid hard, even for your pastor, and I want to doubt whether I'm worthy of God, God clearly says, hey, listen, you didn't pick up the cloak. 
You didn't put it on. I put it on you. And that comes with a promise. A promise of hope. One, by the way, we misunderstand way too often. Romans chapter 8 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The reality of that is astounding. Listen, we want to read Romans 8.28 and say, man, everything's going to work out just fine. That's not what Romans 8.28 says. Romans 8.28 says there is a cloak that has been placed upon you that in God's perfect timing and in his perfect way, good will be accomplished through you. There is your hope. That cloak is your salvation. And so Paul goes on, in, in case you... Crazy Americans, prosperity gospel people think that everything's going to work out okay. Let me, let me tell you what this really means, right? That before time began, I knew you. Before time began, I determined your days. And in doing so, I've called you. I've cloaked you. And because I've cloaked you, I've justified you that Christ literally came died, rose again for you so that in that justification you would know that you would be glorified, that you're going to heaven and experience eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit forever and ever and ever and ever. Listen, Elisha didn't decide to be a prophet, nor did Elijah choose him as a prophet Who called Elisha to be a prophet? God did. You didn't decide to be a follower of Christ or a messenger of hope. And it wasn't the person who told you about Jesus. God did. It's been said by many. I'll say it again. God does not call the equipped. If that were the case, we'd all be in a heap of trouble. But listen, what he has done is he's equipped the called. Because he knew your days before he placed the cloak upon you. And if you sit here today as one who believes in Jesus, this table of his sacrifice and the hope of his resurrection, he has thrown his cloak on you. He has robed you with righteousness. He has given you the authority of Jesus over sin and death. And that is the greatest hope that I could ever share with any of you. So maybe even there's one here today who's doubting that reality in their life. Do I have the cloak? <laughs> Has God actually called me to be his child? You're left in wonder. You're left in wonder. Well, listen, if you're asking the question, I have really good news for you. He's probably at this moment sending his spirit to drop his cloak on you that today would be a day that you would say, I know I am his. And I receive that hope. Not out of my own choice, but out of what Christ has done for me. But also hear this, Christian. 
being cloaked with the salvation of God should inspire us to be those who keep walking in the Spirit to know Him more and to share Him with others. So I ask you, this is the call, right? For you, for many of you, it is your call. What is your response? Listen, I, I believe with all my heart, Matthew and I have prayed through this and talked about it a, a, a great deal. We've introduced some thoughts to session uh, with regard to it. And I know it's really taboo on the first Sunday of the new year to say, this is what God's going to do in 2021. Like, how many of us did that in 2020? And like, God didn't, <laughs> so much for that, right? So I, I, this, is, this is not capital P prophetic, but this is my heart for you, our heart for you, that in this year, we learn what it means to be discipled and be disciples. That this would be a year of, growth for us. Maybe not numerically. God, I hope so. But for those of you who stare at me today, even from your living rooms, that this is a year in which we invest in one another to see our faith grown. That we would understand the call. That we might walk in it. That we might grow and see others grow as a result. What's your response Will you put to death those things that might be a distraction? As Elisha put to death the oxen and burn his plow? I mean, what are the things that will distract you from carrying out this call that he has for you? What are the things that cause you to stumble? What are the things that cause you to fall? What are the things that distract your eyes off the things that God would have? That is, he wants to wash you in his word. That you're seeing other things. Some of these things we need to destroy. Will you run after the one who has cloaked you? I love that Elisha jumps down off the ox. He threw the whole formation off, right? They're all going nice and through the field. Ah, erk, off, the, off the plow, runs after Elijah to say, hey, what is going on? And I would want us to say, man, as God has cloaked us, that we run after him to say, what is it that you're calling me to? Reveal it to me. Tell me, who is it? To which, by the way, God will say, I've already shown you that 1,232 times, but I'm glad you're asking. Will you run after the one who has cloaked you? Will you give your life in devotion to seeing Jesus being known? There's an amazing man, pastor, evangelist. He was a famous cricket player before he was an evangelist. He has a crazy name. C.T. Stud, kind of like the name. He says this, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. C.T. Sutt is most famously known for this phrase. Only one life till soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
wear that mantle, that cloak today. No matter what we do, where we go, vocation we're in, that we would live our lives knowing that indeed one day they will pass, but knowing that the only things that will last in our legacy are the things that we've done for Christ. Which should change everything. (laughs) This table is an amazing cloak of hope today thrown on your shoulders. But it is also the power to be a messenger of hope to those around you. What will you do with your life? Who will we be as a church? May we be people who know our hope and are messengers of that hope to those around us. That we would be a people called out by God, right? To be sent with one another into all the world. A people who know our call, and we respond in faithfulness. It's not an ordination robe. It's the robe of righteousness that is ours through Christ.